I want to spend this conversation focused mainly, obviously, on the Saskatchewan First Act over the Alberta Sovereignty Act. I want to get into the motivations behind this legislature. We'll jump right into it. My first question for you is, you know, combining these two pieces of legislation, is this the most pivotal moment in Canadian political history since the Quebec referendum in the mid-90s? I, I don't think so. Now, the reaction to the, the two pieces of legislation and the court case that might happen, court cases that might happen as a result of this legislation may be seminally important uh, in terms of the country, in terms of the federation. But, you know, I think the, that federal elections, especially the last few, uh, have been arguably more, uh, have had a greater impact uh, on the federation itself and on Canadian unity than, uh, than these two pieces of legislation. Now, you're right, I don't know the Alberta Sovereignty Act as well as I, I, I know the, our act in Saskatchewan. I've had a chance to talk to, to the Premier and uh, the Attorney General about, uh, about the act itself and have been following its introduction. Uh, you noted with, with Premier Clark that, by the way, Premier Clark's great. I, I, I miss working with her. We worked, uh, we worked a lot together during our time as Premiers, but you, you referenced with her the fact that it received unanimous support, Saskatchewan Party and NDP in the House, and it did. <clears throat> that act in particular, the Saskatchewan First Act, is sort of born of a concern about jurisdiction creep, about federal incursions into clearly provincial jurisdictions. Uh, and it, by the way, it's sort of, uh, it's the manifestation of what you see uh, happening on Bill C-69, where I think now nine provinces have joined with the Alberta government's appeal uh, of Bill C-69, the No New Pipelines Act, or call it what you will. Interesting on that act, by the way, when it made it to the Alberta Court of Appeal, a justice used words like the federal government, I'm, this is a bit of a paraphrase, but not much. The federal government has basically taken a wrecking ball, wrecking ball to Section 92 of the Constitution Act, of our Canadian Constitution. And by the way, that's what the Saskatchewan First Act is all about. It's about this section of the Act. And I'll bear with me, I'm going to read it very, very quickly. So this is, the not, this is what we're talking about. This is what you were talking about with Premier Clark. This is the thing that the two provinces are concerned about with the act, and by the way, that other provinces are concerned about because they're, they're intervening in these court cases. Uh, so, 92A1, in each province, the legislature may exclusively make laws in relation to A, exploration for non-renewable natural resources in the province, B, development, conservation, and management of non-renewable natural resources and forestry resources in the province, including laws in relation to the rate of primary production therefrom, and C, finally, this is interesting for Saskatchewan. The development, conservation, and management of sites and facilities in the province for the generation and the production of electrical energy. In Saskatchewan, like you have in BC, we have a Crown Corporation that develops, generates, transmits electricity. The Canadian, um, is it called the Canada Clean Electricity uh, Working Paper that's out, and that'll probably form the basis of legislation from the feds, seeks to, to basically ban coal fire by 2030, but natural gas too by 2035. And with this government, it would, if it stays elected, probably sooner. So the Saskatchewan First Act is more than just, I think uh, Premier Clark's right, there's a message that comes with that act. There is, it's about communications, but it's also substantive. Because that's pretty clear. This is the Constitution of Canada. What section, what, what the Saskatchewan First Act will do will codify this section, basically repeat it 
uh, and then add some specific wording about the province claiming, not any new jurisdiction, just claiming what was in the Constitution Act 1982 as a part of the Saskatchewan First Act. Saskatchewan will also amend the Saskatchewan Act, which is sort of our constitution. It's our connection to, to the Canadian constitution. And, and I think there's a credible, there's a real credible body of thought, of thought leaders, in, including those in our Department of Justice. We have a great constitutional branch, that was my experience when I was Premier, who are of the view that, especially let's take the clean, the clean electrical guidelines, if that becomes legislation and the federal government says, sorry, you can't burn natural gas, in the province of Saskatchewan by, let's say, 2030, and Saskatchewan sort of look at its options and say, well, it'll take us till 2035 to get a nuclear thing built, and it's really the only option that we have for base load. We don't have a lot of hydro. Mm -hmm. I think the view is that that's what this act is all about. And there are other examples. Uh, the clean fuel standard is a good example. But, you know, I think you'll hear provincial government folks calling it carbon tax too, about a $700 million impact on fuel costs on agriculture and mining, on the resource sector, and oil and gas, and on residents. So uh, I do think a big part of this are the two provinces saying we're going to get attention, draw attention to the fact that there is an asymmetry in the federalism of this country, that it is asymmetrical to the benefit of some and to the detriment of others, but we're also going to have a look at me meaningful changes that we can make and, and uh, codifying pieces of the Canadian Constitution Act in, provin in the provincial constitution. If you hear the minister, the attorney general for Saskatchewan talking or the premier, this isn't about wanting to leave. Mm -hmm. This is about wanting to stay. But this is, also, this is also about saying to the rest of the country, not other provinces, but the federal government, this, this is your creed. So are you going to live up to it or not? Mm -hmm. uh, and um, it's going to be interesting to see it unfold. But the bill is passed. It got unanimous consent. And there's some communications around it to be sure. But I think it's more than that. Yeah, I want to get into the communications as well. Before we do that, talk to me about managing that relationship in the past when you were in office. There's always been probably more jurisdictional creep into the prairie provinces because they're less represented um, at the federal level. Uh, we can talk about that. But um, how did you manage that relationship when you're in office compared to how you see it being managed today? So like Christy, I, when I first became premier, was the prime minister was Harper. Uh, and he took a, as she noted uh, aptly, she took a markedly different approach to federalism. His was more of a one-on-one -on -one approach. He wasn't going to have a lot of first minister's meetings. We had, we had one, I think it was Premier Campbell was still the BC Premier then. Right after the crisis, 08-09 uh, crisis, the Prime Minister gathered all the Premiers together in Ottawa to come up with, a, to come up with that, uh, that the plan. How are we going to deal with this, the infrastructure spending that happened as a result? And um, we, uh, we met on that occasion on a multilateral basis, but he preferred a bilateral uh, process, and I won't speak for him, but I think it was because, you know, when all the premiers gather with the prime minister, I don't care who the prime minister is or who the premiers are, you the premiers kind of gang up. We all have our laundry list. We all want to get to the Unimike, you know, that, uh, that looks just like that mic right there, but it's in front of the bank of media, and we want to make our case and why the federal government should be doing more in this particular area or that particular area. And I think Prime Minister Harper understood that that was the theater that happened and not necessarily that constructive and not very helpful to the feds, maybe. But he enjoyed, he, he had a more of a bilateral approach to things. Uh, and so there was not, there was not jurisdiction creep. That, that was not my experience with his government. I think Christie is right on that count as well. But it's changed. And by the way, as I canvass, and I wasn't there at the time, but as I canvass the history that the provinces had with Kretchen, 
there wasn't there wasn't really a worry about jurisdiction creep then that I can pick up. In fact, then you had a Liberal Prime Minister who seemed very proud of the extractive industries in this country, seemed proud of our natural resource strength, proud of oil and gas, or at least not embarrassed by it, yeah. at least not wanting to you know talk about banning it. So I, I think it is a relatively new phenomenon. I think this this jurisdiction creep is sort of new. My first experience with it was the Prime, Prime Minister Trudeau is elected. He calls a first minister's meeting. That's that's the he was going to return to that model that we've just sort of talked about the, the differences between him and Harper. So um, a lot, a couple, some of the premiers um, were advocating that. That, by the way, when the Prime Minister called the meeting, he said, this is going to be about the environment. This is going to be about climate change. That's the only issue. And at that time, in the life of the country, economic issues were, were important. So a few of us said, sure, we'll talk about climate change, but shouldn't we also be talking about the, the economy of the country, the challenges that we have? But the federal government, the Prime Minister's office was firm. We were only going to talk about climate change, and that's what happened. It was hosted right here in the city. And... Um, I remember the Prime Minister had us, he, he had a, a bit of a round table. We went around the table and explained what each jurisdiction was doing in, uh, in the fight against climate change. And some jurisdictions were taking the opportunity to express that they were opposed to this, this notion of a carbon tax that we were hearing rumors about that the federal government wanted to do. That may, that may have been our position in Saskatchewan. But we also wanted to highlight that we, you know, we, we support major technological uh, investments and improvements in Saskatchewan and on a per capita basis had made the largest technological investment in a climate change when we converted a coal plant to a clean coal plant that's today burning natural uh, burning coal three times cleaner than natural gas but what happened at the end of that meeting Jay was the prime minister said well you know we were kind of going back and forth on certain things that we didn't want the, the federal government to move on unilaterally for example a carbon tax we needed to meet more about it we need he needed to hear more from each province about we, what we were doing and I, I heard loud and clear, I think Premier Clark would agree, I know Premier, Premier Pazlowski from Yukon was right beside me. He, he heard it loud and clear that he, there would not be a unilateral move by the federal government on a carbon tax. Months later, what, what we decided was our respective environment ministers would get together and we would have a visit, and they would have a visit and see what we could hammer out in terms of a national climate change plan that involved all the provinces too. And I remember I was out of the country at the time and I got a call from our then environment minister, now Premier, Scott Moe, who was at that meeting, that promised meeting. It did happen. And at that meeting, um, while the meeting was happening, Catherine McKenna was the environment minister. She's chairing it. While those environment ministers are meeting to come up with a plan, that's the day the prime minister unilaterally announced the carbon tax. I remember Premier Moe, well, now Premier Moe called me and said, I mean, I can't believe this. We are here specifically because we understood this is the, these are working meetings. We're going to get to a plan and they've gone ahead and announced this. He said, I'd like to leave if you're okay with it. I'd like to leave the meeting. And I said, well, can you take anyone with you? And he said, I think I can take Newfoundland. I think Newfoundland will come. And I said, well, you know, absolutely. But so there's, there's not, that's not necessarily jurisdiction creep because in the end, the Supreme Court, uh, we lost the Supreme Court case though we were joined by three other provinces on the carbon tax. But it is an example of just a very unilateral approach on the federal government's part. That, that is also the reason for this act. Because yeah. it's hard to trust. I don't care the stripe of the government, folks. I'm not just beating on, 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 the, on the liberal government. You've already heard me say that the Kretchen government had a lot to offer it that I miss uh, about it. 
So it's not just a partisan thing, but for this particular government on these issues, this, these acts are coming forward because it's hard to trust them. It's hard to trust someone who says, don't worry, nothing unilateral, and six months later, you get it. It's hard to trust them when Poiliev, as the critic in 2015, before that election, basically says, uh, calls the federal government out and says, you have a plan to increase this carbon tax to, you know, to well beyond the, the 25 or whatever it was at. And Minister McKenna came out prior to the election and said, nothing higher than 50, I think it was 50 bucks. And right after the election's over, it's $170. This is why provinces are doing this. It's not because they don't want to be part of the country anymore. It's because on these issues, they can't trust their federal partner. If there is a different approach from a federal government, you wouldn't have these bills. Thank you. Now, I want to I back up there because what you just outlined makes a perfect case for why this legislation has to be put forward, successful or not. But you pointed to the biggest issue with it being right now a communications issue. And I want to sit with that. I want to spend a minute on that because I feel like I've seen that in the media recently, uh, actually shortly after this act was passed, I watched a debate on Global News where they were debating uh, the utility of these acts. There were four people on a panel. Um, and any from Saskatchewan? Not one from Saskatchewan or, or Alberta. from Alberta, right? Global had gathered experts on the Saskatchewan First Act from Ontario and British Columbia, but left Saskatchewan out of the conversation. Um, so when you say there's a communications problem, I'm like, it seems pretty intentional. What's, what's the motivation behind that? And, and as a consequence, it is being framed as a, almost like a separatist movement. It is, uh, and it really is the opposite. Uh, if you listen to both, well, I, I, I know my province better, and I know my former colleagues who are still in government, including the premier, and I know how they're wired, and I know how they feel about the country, uh, and it's just not the case. Uh, it isn't. The, um, here's some wording from the Saskatchewan First Act. Saska this, part, this part's the paraphrase, but I'll get to the quote. Saskatchewan will decide for itself the, quote, regulation of environmental standards and the regulation of greenhouse gas emissions and other emissions and the source of fuel for electrical generation, end quote. Well, that's exactly what Section 92A gives the provinces the right to do. So I, I use that quote in answer to your question, Jay, because... There's nothing in that, that act, that would be a pretty important quote in that act, by the way. Uh, that'd be at the heart of it. There's nothing in the act that isn't constitutional. In fact, the head of our constitutional branch, a brilliant lawyer named Mitch McAdam was in the, was in the media shortly after it was introduced and said, this is, this is actually, we're just using a section of the Canadian Constitution, we're reaffirming it, codifying it in our own Constitution. Oh, and there's one other important part that, I haven't, that I've missed yet so far, and that is that the Act in Saskatchewan also creates something called the Economic Impact Assessment Tribunal. This will be an independent group appointed, appointed by government. The federal government will be asked to participate, and if there's a federal policy that's seen to have a to harm our economy, the, this panel, this tribunal, in a public forum, they'll have the powers of a public inquiry under the Public Inquiry Act 2013. They'll have the opportunity to, um, to measure the economic impact of a federal uh, measure, federal policy. This is, I'm, I'm told, this is not unimportant too in terms of some subsequent future legal uh, challenges that might come to it. So, you know, 
again, are you going to win the legal challenges? We, you know, the Alberta Court of Appeal voted with us on the carbon tax. We lost at the Supreme Court. Who knows? But I think each premier says, as long as we have this federal government or this approach from the federal government, you know, we need this. There's one other thing that we're dealing with on the prairies, especially in Saskatchewan and Alberta. This federation of ours, and it's not, it's not the fairest of federations in terms of how it treats the units, the subnationals. And here's what I mean by that. Our, the federal seat of our federation is a de facto unicameral government, one house. Because the Senate is, there's good people in the Senate, but it's not, it's not a decision-making body, right? And even it's not constituted on a sort of equal uh, senators in each unit. So you have a unicameral, one house, House of Commons seat of the federal government. The other remedy for smaller, less populated provinces who have concerns like this might be, well, what about amending the Constitution? Maybe to change the Senate, or maybe some other amendment that might help. Again, the amending formula is basically a representation by population thing. You got to get through um, the National Assembly in Queen's Park. You got to get votes, majority votes in the House of Commons. So if, you're, if your constitution is on, on these substantive issues, unamendable, I don't think that's a word, but I'll use it anyway. If, it's, if you can't amend your constitution in favor of these issues, and, the, and you only have the House of Commons as your other point of remedy, which is, based on, which is a representation by population body, and so therefore you're not going to have the MPs to help affect change. If you're Saskatchewan and Alberta, or even other small provinces, small, what do you got? The American Federation, imperfect as it is, didn't get that fundamental part wrong. They got it right, that part, this representation part, because Montana may only have one member of the House of Reps, but they got two senators, just like New York, just like Los Angeles. And the Senate is a real uh, you know, decision-making, law-making body in that country. So, so that's the other thing I think these premiers are looking at, these governments, and the people that support them in Saskatchewan and Alberta are looking at this particular, this particular legislation as, as a way to help with that imbalance that's there. And it, it ain't going away, Jay. Who's gonna, I remember at coffee breaks, I'd ask a premier of a large province, a premier of Ontario, would you ever support meaningful Senate reform? Would you support some fundamental changes to deal with some inequities? And he would just say, well, I, I hear, you know, they were all, always very kind and polite when I'd ask the question, but the short answer was no. Why, and why would you? Right. If you were the Premier of Ontario or no. the Premier of Quebec, why would you give up the hammer? Why would I cede power? Not, not yeah. a hammer, maybe, but why would you give up a significant advantage? Yeah. Okay. Um, I want to pivot a little bit to Canada's resource economy. Saskatchewan is laid in with oil and gas, copper, base metals, arguably the you know, the most prolific uranium mining district in the world. Um, it's also landlocked. It's a minor issue, I suppose. But when we've leveraged our resource economy effectively, you know, we've weathered substantial storms in this country, one being the 2008 financial crisis coming through that with a healthier balance sheet than any other G8 nation. Um, I have to think a lot of the short-sighted federal decisions are a consequence of life being pretty good for the last decade. When things get hard, people get smarter, which makes me optimistic for the future of our resource economy. Do you feel that way as well, or what's it going to take, Brad, to leverage the power held within Saskatchewan? Well, you know, I, 
it's it's the it is the economy itself. What did James Carville say? It's the economy, stupid. He wrote on that little note for Clinton. He was right about it uh, for that election, and it's really true in terms of federal provincial dynamic and uh, and politics in general. But it's even more true uh, for societies that want to continue to grow, that want to uh, that want to see wealth uh, attracted, investment attracted for all the right reasons, not just for. The sake of pie charts and GDP numbers, but all but but quality of life uh, issues. So we've been saying for a long time in Saskatchewan, we're really lucky. We have what the world wants, uh, and it's 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 absolutely true now. And you're right that that resource helped us in that in 2009, significant especially potash. We had about 11 billion dollars in brownfield expansions that were going on. Uh, we had not so much on the uranium front, but oil and gas was was strong. Agriculture strong. Saskatchewan has 44% of Canada's arable acres. 44%. About a third of, uh, well, more than a third. About 40% of all the lentils exported around the world come from Saskatchewan farmers. Same would true for field peas. I mean, pick a crop: canola, wheat. I mean, we're we're very fortunate on the agriculture side too. A third of Canada's beef herd. And those things have helped us in the, these major down cycle moments. Those fundamentals uh, are, are positive. I mean, we, we, have to be, we have to keep our eye on the ball with respect to diversifying, with respect to tech opportunities built on those primary industries. But we're into it again, aren't we? As you take a look at what's happening with uranium prices. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, ha- I'm proud to be on the board of, of NextGen. You know, we're working on what will be the largest uranium mine in the world in northern Saskatchewan. And... The, the approach of management has been to not just talk about ESG, but to approach things in a, in, in a meaningfully sustainable way, to, to approach indigenous engagement uh, as, as though it is the most important thing. Uh, and I think three of the four impact benefit agreements are already signed. But, and then we, we know what's happened with Cameco and the strength uh, that they've found here lately. That's the uranium side. The potash side, BHP announces uh, you know what, is this their largest project to date? It's a pretty big company. That's at Jansen Lake. But folks probably remember in the room, you might have been a little angry with the government that I led at the time when we kind of got in the way of a, of a market merger. I know my, my dad was disappointed. Uh, but um, we, we did it because we thought it was what was best for the province, notwithstanding the fact that we were sort of getting in the way of, of a market transaction. And you remember that when BHP was proposing the takeover, they... They were also saying that we're going to we're going to we're going to take over Potash Corp, but then we're also building a new mine at Jansen Lake, Saskatchewan, new potash mine. And when the deal didn't happen, uh, I think all of us thought reasonably that BHP would probably not do that project. Well, they have been uh, they they basically opened up a very significant office in Saskatoon. I think it's basically their Canadian headquarters. And they've gone about the business of working on the due diligence for Jansen Lake. And the FID happened a year ago, August. And uh, they have been outstanding corporate citizens. And so now we've got expansions uh, and capacities happening again in the potash sector, to your question, to your point, Mm -hmm. and in uranium and um, on the oil and gas side uh, as well. So again, it's, uh, it's not a bad place to be at a time like this. I want to ask you the same question that I asked Premier Clark uh, to wrap up our chat. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about the problems with Canada, but there's no other country I'd rather live in. So, Brad, what makes you optimistic about Canada's future? Well, it's weird for me, right? I, I mean, I'm now, I'm, I'm retired from politics. Mm. And so not only do I not have, I mean, as a provincial premier, you're not off, you're not always considering sort of national issues. You're you're hired to be the premier of the province. Your cabinet's hired to be the cabinet, and 
you're focused on Saskatchewan things. Uh, but you certainly have more opportunity than, than, than I would otherwise to think about Canada. Hmm. Now I'm, I've been out of politics for five years. I can't hardly believe it. It's like more than a full term of government. I've been out. Um, but now we live in a little southwest corner of the province about 50 miles from the Montana border and in the Cypress Hills. And your perspective maybe gets uh, uh, get narrower more parochial, I think mine probably has. So I'm exceedingly optimistic about where I live, about our neighbors, about how we make a living and how we care about each other, the community that's there. And I'm extremely optimistic for the province of Saskatchewan for the reasons that we've just talked about. We don't have to repeat. We do really have what the world wants, food, fuel, and fertilizer. And increasingly that tech sector sort of been being invested and built upon that. I'm really optimistic about that. And so, if, if ever, here's how I'll get to your answer. If everybody that has maybe my perspective feels that way about their respective community and province, then writ large, cumulatively, then we all, you know, if you put us all in the room, we'd all feel pretty good about the country. Mm -hmm. But it might not be something, it might not be coming from some sort of national fabric or national issue itself. Our pride and our optimism might be coming from where we are in that big country and our prospects that we look at that we can see for the future in that big country. And by the way, that's okay too. That mean, doesn't mean you're any less proud of, of your citizenship. It just might be informed about, it might be informed at a much more grassroots level and that's probably where I am. I'm really proud to be from Cypress Hills, proud to be from Saskatchewan, optimistic about our future. And so therefore, Canada's chances have to be pretty good too. <laughs> I love that perspective, thank you. And thank you so much for coming to chat with me today and getting in front of our audience. We really appreciate it, Brad. Thanks so much. One more Thanks. time, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks, everybody. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.